morning, church. Merry Christmas. If there is any room for you guys to scoot in, there may not be, but if there is, as people still come in, if you could do that, that would be great. I am excited to be here with you for the first of our four Christmas Eve services this morning that we're having today. And you know what's amazing? We are blessed. I hope you feel blessed today. We are blessed to be taking a whole Sunday to focus and worship and reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ into our world. I'm going to contend this morning that Christmas is the greatest thing that has ever happened. I know that's a hot take. Some of you might say, you know what, I, like the, the cross or the resurrection are the greatest things to have ever happened. But I would say in order for him to first die, to come and die, in order for him to be raised, he first had to come. And this morning, as we dive into chapter one of John, verses 14 through 17, we're going to focus on one word, a word that you may or may not be familiar with, the word incarnation, incarnation. The word incarnation literally means in the flesh. It's the majestic and radical idea within Christianity that the eternal son of God took on an additional nature, the nature of humanity, to be with us, to live among us, to teach us to ultimately die for us. In the entire history of mankind, it hinges on this moment. You see, the Old Testament foretold of this event. The prophets prophesied about this event. And then a little over 2,000 years ago, at just the right time in Bethlehem, it happened. Heaven came down as a baby to bless the entire world. Are you kidding me? How many of us here this morning would consider yourselves sports fans? By show of hands, you like sports fans? Some of us here, a couple of us here. Everyone who knows me and knows our entire family for that matter knows that we are huge soccer fans. It is the best sport in the world. Thank you, yeah, there we go, there we go. Some soccer fans over here. I I'm just gonna say this. 3.5 billion people can't be wrong. I'm just going to say that. Don't hate. Don't hate. But whatever, whatever happens to be your favorite sport, you cannot deny that the best sports moments are the last gasp wins, right? When your team is down and then seemingly out of nowhere, they're able to pull victory from the jaws of defeat. And the reason why this is so thrilling is because the radical shift of emotion, right, of going from a crushing loss and hopelessness to the elation that comes from an amazing victory. Friends, Christmas is humanity's amazing victory. And the reason why this story, the story of the incarnation, hasn't been forgotten in the dustbin of history is because what happened in Bethlehem, it defines human history. It's a story we can't forget even if we tried because it so accurately describes humanity's need. Christmas is the greatest thing that has ever happened. And unlike in a sporting event where you just simply watch from your couch or you watch from the stands, you're really not actually involved. Christmas was and is an invitation for us to get involved, for us to follow the incarnate Christ who came at just the right time to turn a loss into a victory in my life and in your life. 
And so on this Christmas Eve, we're going to look at three implications of the incarnation for our lives today. Before we do that, let's say a word of prayer. The Holy Spirit will come and teach us, envelop our hearts in his name. Lord God, I, I pray that as we look into John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, that you will take that blessed truth in, the, in those passages and illuminate our hearts to understand and to receive what we have been offered. It would be such a shame for us to live our lives with a knowledge of Christmas, but not to understand the deepness of what you have done for us so that our lives could then return in worship to you, that our lives could be an offering to you, as we just sang. So Father, I pray that you will give us what we need, that you will anoint this teaching, and we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so if you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles, your Bible apps to John chapter 1. Again, we'll be starting in verse 14. That's what it says. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to pause there. Here in verse 14, we see that John once again describes Jesus as the Word. We have covered this in previous sermons, but to state it again briefly, the Word speaks to the pre-existence, His divine nature, His role in creation, His position as the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. Again, this is the idea that the heavenly has come down to be with us. You see, when Jesus was born as the baby in the manger in Bethlehem, that is not when he came into existence. He's always existed in heaven with God the Father. But now on this first Christmas, he came down in a human body to dwell among us. The word dwelling here means tabernacled or pitched his tent, meaning that this was not a short appearance. This was not a pit stop or a flyby, that God actually came here as a man to live among men. We cannot discount the amazingness of this. How many of you have ever had a really tough day? And at the end of your day, you're like, I just can't take this planet or these people anymore. All of you should have your hands raised. Everybody, I've had that thought more than I should. I am ashamed by how often I feel that way. But I'm a sinful, fallen person just like everyone else. I can't imagine if I was sinless perfection, choosing to come here and make this place my dwelling. Could you imagine the President of the United States flying coach on Spirit Airlines? I mean, if you like spirit, that's fine, but I can't imagine the president doing that. And then when he arrives at his destination, like flying around the world, he just stays at the Best Western, right? Probably couldn't imagine that. And you'd say, well, that's absurd. They would never do that. And I'd say maybe, but what truly is absurd is the son of God to make his dwelling among us, to be born in a manger. Jesus Christ is a glory of God revealed to mankind. And he didn't just stop by. For 33 years, he lived and loved. He cried, he sweat, he bled, 
He died for you and me. And this is why John goes on to say here that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. For 33 years, humanity got to see Christ's moral glory on display. And so now we have a clear vision. We now have a clear vision and can see exactly what Christ-like character looks like. For those 33 years, we got to see Christ perform miraculous works. The Gospels record around 37 miracles that Jesus performed, from the healings, from the, the, the demon possession that he cast out, to the multiplying food. Again, the incarnation wasn't just a sightseeing expedition. Jesus came to dwell among us, to feel our pain, to know us, ultimately for his glory to be revealed. And that brings us to our first truth for this morning. The incarnation proves that God desires us to be with him. God desires us to be with him. That sounds so simple, but it is so profound. And if you believe that that is true, that God desires to be with you, it will radically transform your life. But there are many people who struggle with this notion, the idea that God desires to be with them because we look at our lives and we look at the sin in our lives and the idea that God desires to be with me? God wouldn't want anything to do with me. But you see, friends, that's why the, the gospel is good news. It tells a different story. It says that Jesus came in the flesh for that very reason. Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 5, it is not that healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God loves us, friends. He doesn't need you to be good enough because his grace is sufficient. Jesus came in the flesh to preach a message of repentance. For us to turn from darkness and to walk in the light he provides. But you see, we aren't the light. It's not about us. It's about us following the source of light out of that darkness. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I could see us doubting an all-powerful, all-knowing God's desire to be with us if he never got involved. Right? If he stayed far away and he didn't answer if we called out to him. But the truth is that God didn't just say he desired to be with us. He sent his one and only son to prove his love. This is a concept that we truly do not understand. And I don't think we will until we're really around the throne room of heaven praising him. The depths of God's love his desire to save mankind, that he would sacrifice his only son to accomplish this. Because the truth is, I love you all, sincerely I do, but I am not going to sacrifice my son to save you. But we serve an amazing God with a crazy amount of love who would do that for you and for me. Friends, do not miss out on this love. Believe in God's love for you. Read about it in his word. And if you are doubting the truthfulness of that claim, pray 
and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's amazing love for you today. Try him out. Pray to him, seek him out. And you will hear from the Lord and experience God's deep love for you. Moving on in verse 15. John continues on by testifying about John the Baptist. He says, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 15 is referring to John the Baptist. So John, the gospel writer, is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. He also started his earthly ministry before Jesus did. Typically when someone precedes a teacher or a leader, they have the preeminence, they have the seniority, the years in, but not here. Because John the Baptist says that Jesus, he was before me. Now, John cannot be referring here to chronological age or length of ministry because I already stated that he said that, you know, he's, he's been around longer. He's older. He had more years in ministry in. So what does John mean here? Clearly, John the Baptist is making the argument that Jesus is before time itself. You see, John the gospel writer gives Jesus the title, the word which again means that Christ is the communication of God. The way we get to know more about God and his will is through the word Jesus. And then John goes on to say that the word was with God, that he was fully God, and also that the word created all things. This is a clear declaration of Christ's deity and preexistence. By preexistence, I mean that before he became a man, before he became a man, before he walked upon the earth, that Jesus was already in existence as the second person of the Trinity. Now you might ask the question, well, that's great, but why does that matter? Why is it important that Jesus existed before he was the baby in the manger? Well, one reason is because if Jesus was simply created, a created being like you and me, what power could he claim over sin and death? If Jesus isn't one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, how can he intercede on our behalf? And so what John the Baptist points to here is the basis of our second truth for this morning. The eternality of Jesus gives us the hope of eternity. The eternality of Jesus gives us the hope of eternity. You know, we live in a world where everything has had a beginning. The pew that you are sitting in right now had a beginning. The car you drove here in had a beginning. Everybody that you have ever known over the course of your entire life was born, has a birthday, their beginning. And so therefore, the concept of something or someone being eternal is really foreign to us. So far in that we, we struggle to wrap our minds around this. If you ever want to break your brain, just try to think about eternity for a long time. Your brain will start to hurt. But a part of the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came and died so that we could have eternality just like him. The Bible clearly teaches that our relationship to Christ, it determines our eternity. 
John 3.16 states, a verse that many of you know, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Friends, if Jesus didn't already possess eternal life as the baby in the manger, how could he ever by his death grant it to us? If Jesus was created just like you and I, he might still be a good moral teacher an inspiration perhaps, but he would have no power over sin and death. See, John the Baptist and John the gospel writer combined to emphasize here that Jesus was preexistent deity because it's important that we recognize his power to rip us from the jaws of death and to offer us everlasting life in his name. The man on your screen There he is. It's a man by the name of Brian Johnson. No relation. (laughs) He is a 46-year-old billionaire, entrepreneur, and futurist that ABC News, some of you may have seen this because ABC News literally last week just did a big profile on this guy. The reason why they uh, profiled him is because he is spending $2 million a year on a project that he calls Blueprint that he claims over the course of time he will reverse his biological age back to 18. That's what he's claiming. Now, I'm not sure why anyone would ever want to go back to being 18. I mean, sorry to all you 18s year olds out there, but I would not want to go back to being 18. But Brian Johnson isn't just anybody. He plans to share his findings so that you and I can pay him $2 million a year so that we can all return back to being 18 years of age. Now, he's been at this for a little while, and he definitely doesn't look 18 to me yet. Um, Maybe he will look 18 by the time he's 75. I don't know. Now, obviously, this is absurd. We cannot reverse the clock and live forever. But Brian Johnson is going to try because all of his hope is pinned down here on this earth with his billions. Clearly, he's afraid to die because if in this life, right, he's he's in control. He sets the agenda. Everyone listens to him. But he instinctively knows that if he slips from this life into the next, all that's going to go away. He will lose all the influence and the power, and he cannot let that happen. And as I watched this report from this guy last week, I was really saddened for him. Because if Brian Johnson knew about the everlasting life that Jesus offers everyone, he would have a new hope that surpasses this temporal existence and extends forever. You see, church, the plan to live forever has nothing to do with reversing our biological, physical clock and everything to do with receiving the incarnate one and only Son. As we continue on, John shares about the blessings we Christians receive from being united with Christ. Verse 16 reads, Out of his fullness... We have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. 
the incarnate Christ, is a source of all grace in the life of the believer. The phrase here, grace in place of grace, simply means that because of Jesus' presence in our lives, we can receive one blessing after the other, after the other, after the other. One commentator described the grace of God like waves continuing to crash upon the shore as you stand upon that shoreline and wave hits you and wave hits you. We've all experienced that. They just keep on coming and keep on coming. It's similar to the waves of grace that hit the lives of those whom Christ has redeemed. John makes mention here of the law of Moses. Why does he do that? He brings up the law to highlight it was insufficient. The law of Moses was not a display of grace. It commanded us to obey and condemned us to death if we failed. The law told us what was right, but it didn't give us the power to do it. It was given to show us that we were sinners, but it could not save us from our sins. But the good news is that grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. He didn't come to judge the world, but to save those who were unworthy, those who could not save themselves, to save even those who were his enemies. This is grace, my friends. Heaven's best for earth's worst. This leads us to our final truth for this morning. Jesus offers us grace and truth found nowhere else. It is so true. Jesus offers us the grace and the truth that is not found anywhere else. You know, where do you go to find grace in our world? Like hopefully as you interact here and, and share here, you experience that here at Brandywine. But where do you go to find grace in this world? Did you see a lot of grace out there as you were holiday shopping? Hopefully all of you are done. I'll say a prayer for any poor soul that has not done their Christmas shopping. I actually saw someone in a parking lot the other day screaming at another shopper because they simply parked their car too close to them. As a member of the human race, I can confidently affirm that grace is not our specialty. Grace is defined as unmerited favor, goodwill to those who do not deserve it. And we all need this, right? We all know how much we need grace and we all love to receive grace. But oftentimes we struggle to receive it. We try to convince ourselves that we can do it ourselves, that we can be strong enough, that we can be smart enough, that we can be independent enough. And it can be hard for us sometimes to fully receive the grace that, that Jesus wants to offer us in our lives. And the reason why is when it comes to surrender. When it comes to receiving his grace and giving up control, taking our hands off of our lives in some respect. And it's at this point that we often say to the Lord, Lord, I like the unmerited favor part, but you lost me at surrender. It might sound a bit strange, but receiving the grace of God can be a bit like riding a roller coaster. And you might wonder, well, how in the world is that? To illustrate this point, last summer, my wife and I tagged along with our student ministry to Dorney Park. And my wife and I, we were feeling good. So we decided that we were going to ride Hydra. 
I don't know what we were thinking. This proved not to be a good idea. I learned a while ago that roller coasters are a young person's game, but then I forgot. For some reason, we thought that we were still young enough to do this. My wife started out screaming and laughing. She was like mostly laughing. It was actually kind of funny. She like was like laughing profusely. And then halfway through, she just stopped. Like she just stopped making any sounds. And she kept her mouth shut because she was afraid something was going to come out. You see, as we age, our vestibular system, this system that handles motion sickness, you can drop that at your Christmas party, by the way, just like vestibular system, like motion sickness, like it's a free one. As we age, it gets less efficient. When we are young, the system generally just handles all the twists and turns just fine, which is why when you're a kid, it's like it doesn't matter. You can do the, the teacups. I, I get nauseous watching people on the teacups. I don't even have to go on the ride to get sick. Now, the good news is our vestibular system become, can become more efficient through training. But the bad news is that training includes riding roller coasters over and over and over again until that system just like recalibrates and gets used to it. Like, so Kaylee, there is hope. There is hope. <laughs> we may go back next summer and conquer Hydra together. We're not doing that. You see, <laughs> receiving grace can be like riding a roller coaster in that we aren't in the driver's seat. We aren't the ones that are in control. And neither can we accurately predict all the twists and turns and loops that are going to come our way. Receiving the grace of God can be uncomfortable. It can be anxiety-inducing because we do not know how he will provide. That's the sticking point. So maybe sometimes we trust, like, oh, God will provide, but uh, I'm concerned about how the Lord is going to provide. So, Lord, you know what? It's okay. I'm not even going to pray about that because I can do this by myself. Just like our vestibular system can get better through exposure again and again and again, so can our ability to receive God's grace through our exposure to the Son. Friends, you see, the incarnation of Christ brought an amazing gift into the world, but John emphasizes in our text that this grace upon grace in our lives is a gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. There are so many of us in here that can testify that God's initial grace of salvation, thank you, Lord, but then grace upon grace upon grace over the course of our lives, thank you, Lord. Church, what areas of your life are you trying to control, trying to perhaps manage apart from the grace of God? Because we all struggle. We struggle in our marriages. We struggle in our parenting. We have work issues and health issues and friend issues and issues at school. It's overwhelming to try to bear all of this ourselves. But here is the blessing. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus understands the burden of human existence. He does. He made his tent here. Allow his grace to wash over you this Christmas. Grace upon grace upon grace. But it's not just the grace of Jesus. John emphasizes here in our text, 
in verse 17, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's important that John includes both grace and truth here because it's vital that we understand that Jesus didn't just show grace at the expense of truth. See, although he loved sinners, he did not love their sins. He realized the truth that our sins condemn us, and that is why we need a Savior. Jesus was often telling people uncomfortable truths about their need for a Savior, but he handled it graciously, so graciously that people wanted to follow him. It's often difficult to get that balance between grace and truth right. By a show of hands, how many of you find it easier to be gracious? Who am I, grace people out there? A couple of us out there? A couple? How about, how about our truthers? Our truth people, right? How many? So neither of you guys show grace or truth. Man, we have, we have services here every Sunday. Please come. But I'm one of the people that just more, much more easily is on the tr- like truth, like truth, truth, truth. And grace is what I struggle. I'm struggling with the gracious part. Church, Jesus says here that he is the truth. John 14, 6, before the incarnation, the law of Moses was the authoritative standard for what righteousness was and wasn't true. And now veiled in flesh, the Godhead see Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Which means that as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we get more and more truth because we are connected to its source. I want to close our time this morning by reading a poem that was written some 1,500 years ago. It's amazing that the gospel is so true that a poem written about what Jesus did 1,500 years ago still hits so well today. It's written by one of our early church fathers, St. Augustine of Hippo. The mystery of of the incarnation is captivating. It's captivated Christians for so many centuries. And Augustine here tries to capture the majesty of God becoming one of us. And this is what he says. Maker of the sun, he is made under the sun. In the father he remains, from the mother he goes forth. Creator of heaven and earth, he was born on earth under heaven. Unspeakably wise, he is wisely speechless. Filling the world, he lies in a manger. Ruler of the stars, he nurses at his mother's bosom. He is both great in the nature of God and small in the form of a servant. This Christmas, may you be overjoyed and filled with what Christ has done for you. God became a man to save the world. Hallelujah. This is good news. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we marvel at this mystery of the incarnation. The blessed truth that you would come to dwell among us, to experience this life so that you could be our intercessor, that you could be our intermediary, 
It is something that we will not truly understand this side of heaven, the amazing gift that has been given to us. But Lord, I pray that in my life and in the life of our church, Lord, that we will be people who live to honor this sacrifice. As we wake and as we rise, as we live and as we go, that the impact of the incarnation will stick and stay because we believe that in this happening, it was the greatest thing that ever happened because it set the course of history in a way that we could receive redemption, the salvation of our souls and not only have this earth and this life to hope in, but to have the hope of eternity. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness as evidence in the coming of your son. We pray these things in the mighty name of Christ our Lord. Amen.